Generation Star Wars is speaking up and sharing its story. I'm Andrew Leyland. I'm David Michelini. I'm Tom Panneries. I'm Steve Glosson. I'm Matt Hunsworth. I'm Scott Gardner. I'm Ryan Shaw. I'm Paul Herman. I'm Jimmy Mack. I'm Ryder Waldron. I'm Justin Bulger. I'm Joseph Tavano. I'm John Jackson Miller. I'm Consetta Parker. I'm Steve Sansweet. And this. And this. And this. Is my Star Wars story. Is my Star Wars story. My Star Wars story. My Star Wars story. My Star Wars story. My Star Wars story my star wars story my star wars story my star wars story monthly at mystarwarsstory.com and available in the itunes store superman captain marvel batman it is 1985 robin of earth 2 sergeant rock the Legion of Superheroes. This is the most eagerly awaited comic book event in 50 years. Tommy Tomorrow. Jonah Hex. Commanding. It will one day be called the greatest comic book event of all time. Swamp Thing. Wonder Woman. The New Teen Titans. The Haunted Tank. Infinity Incorporated. Worlds will live. Green Arrow. Worlds will die. Supergirl. The Flash. And that is only the beginning. The Justice League of America. The All-Star Squadron. The Huntress. Area. The Metal Man. Firestorm. The Nuclear the Man. Outsiders. Green Lantern. The Blue Beetle. The Crime Syndicate. Warlord. The Guardians of the Universe. Tales of the Justice Society of America proudly presents... And many, many more. Crisis on Infinite Earths. The DC Universe will never be the same. Only at two true freaks.com. And now it's time to sit back and enjoy. The Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, a great adventure took place. Oh no! What will we do now? R2D2, you found a cigarette! Well, I don't think smoking has grown up at all. Don't be so ridiculous, R2. Thunder rules are for Earthlings. <coughs> All you need is a little rewiring, but children need to be fully immunized. I'm Jawa. Want my droid? Sure, what you got? Wampa, wampa, wampa! We picked up something. It's the Millennium Falcon. I am Boba Fett. The ship you seek is nearby. Two True Freaks presents. Growing up Star Wars. Action figures sold separately. Hello, my name is Scott Gardner, and welcome to Growing Up Star Wars Episode Lucky 7. Why lucky, you ask? Well, as you may have heard, Star Wars Celebration was held again recently, this time out in Anaheim, California, as opposed to where it has been held for the past two times here in the U.S., Orlando where I live. 
yeah. So uh, while I sat home and cried my eyes out, our good friend Tim Elliott traveled to sunny California and played Freak on the Beat for us, capturing lots of great audio that you, you lucky dog, are about to hear. Tim has provided us content for three exciting panels. The first one on Star Wars music, a personal favorite of mine. Another on Star Wars coming home to Marvel Comics. And lastly, a panel all about comic art collecting. We think you're really going to enjoy this content, and we thank Tim for getting out there, representing Two True Freaks, and capturing this great audio for us. So sit back. Put on your headphones, and you are about to be magically transported to Star Wars Celebration Anaheim. Oh, and just in case you're wondering, we'll all be back next month with a brand new episode, promise. Chris couldn't be here because of yet another community service obligation. And uh, Scott Reifen, I don't know, he said something about a baby-eating contest? I, I don't know. Anyway, enjoy the panels, folks, and we'll see you next month. How you guys doing? Good. Welcome to Star Wars Celebration Anaheim. This is our very first panel right here on the digital stage. Thank you for making it all the way up to the third floor. So, uh, how about that panel this morning? I mean, come on. Give it up for J.J. Abrams and Kathleen Kennedy. I'm still... You know, you, you think about it, am I nervous because of uh, being the digital stage host? No, I think I'm just shaking from that trailer. That was amazing. I don't know about you guys, but I thought I was going to pass out. Anyway, welcome to the digital stage. We have a lot of great content happening here this weekend, starting, of course, right now. we got a few things I want to tell you about in case you, want, you can make your way back here. Tomorrow morning, we've got the intergalactic debut of Star Wars Battlefront. Something really special. We have the season two premiere Saturday night of a show called Star Wars Rebels. Anybody heard of that? <laughs> Plus, a lot of never before seen Clone Wars content. We've got uh, an interview later on today with producer Howard Kazanjian from Return of the Jedi. That's going to be really, really special. And of course, right here on this stage, we have the U.S. premiere of Attack of the Clones in 3D tonight. Right after 3D Phantom Menace, and then Revenge of the Sith in 3D, a worldwide debut tomorrow night with Ian McDiarmid. So please be sure to check that out. So right now I want to talk about what we're going to look at in the next hour, and I really want to thank you all for doing this. This is actually, uh, in all my years of hosting, the first time I've actually hosted my own panel. Um, but I'm doing a panel called The Restored Music of the Empire Strikes Back. Well, now what does that mean exactly? Well, this is a music panel about the music of John Williams, who is an incredible composer, right? He's I'm sure we all have the soundtracks, right? Or uh, we have it on our iTunes or Spotify or whatever it is. Well, the music of John Williams is obviously vastly important to the Star Wars films, to the TV shows, to the video games, to everything Star Wars. It's a huge part of those experiences. I know that all of you, myself included, can hear just a couple of bars of the music and you're instantly transported back to those scenes in those movies, right? I mean, almost instantaneously, oh, that's from Dagobah, or oh, that's from Tatooine. Well, what we're doing today is, this, just a little disclaimer, this is purely an intellectual exercise, and maybe some of you have done this. John Williams has written so much music for Star Wars. What you may not know is that not all of the music that he wrote actually made it into the final films. 
And this is very true in the case of The Empire Strikes Back. The total runtime of The Empire Strikes Back is 127 minutes. John Williams, in less than four weeks, wrote 117 minutes of music for it. So that is almost wall-to-wall music. Now, you all know the the movie very well, right? You guys have all seen The Empire Strikes Back. It's 35 years old this May, next month, right? So we know these scenes by heart. But I don't know if any of you have tried this experiment. I know I'm not the first, but if you read the liner notes, I've got the soundtracks here. Starting in 1993, when this anthology came out, you guys pick this thing up? You can actually see in here, as you read through these cues... It'll tell you certain things were omitted from the film, right? It says, well, this part where the Tauntaun is running, that was not used in the film. But it's still there. It made its way into video games like Shadows of the Empire and what have you. This is true throughout The Empire Strikes Back. There is almost 15 minutes of music that was omitted before the final mix of the picture made it into theaters. And that's what we're looking at today. So what I did was I took the 5.1 mix... And I took the Blu-ray version of the film, and I took those cues based on the research that's available to us since 1993. It was on the 1997 soundtrack, re-released again in 2004, and I've mixed it back into the movie. And what we're doing over the next hour is we're going to look at those. First the original, then we're going to look at the uh, restored version. And I want you all to kind of think about it, and, and how does that make you feel? First, a little bit about, about, uh, about me and John Williams. Obviously, John Williams is an incredible musician. Um, I, uh, I worked at LucasArts for about almost 12 years, uh, starting at the scoring stage at Skywalker Sound. And like many of you, I thought I knew this music by heart. Uh, you know, Republic Commando, Force Unleashed, Battlefront, all those things. I worked with this music on a weekly basis, but it wasn't until I started doing a podcast called The, the uh, Music of John Wayne Thank you for listening. That I really started looking at a lot of this music in depth. And I think that when it comes to music, because it's so important to Star Wars and his fans, I think it's really important to take a deeper look. I know to a lot of us, music seems like magic, but it is a creative process with the director, the producer. First, it, first you shoot the picture, right? Then you, uh, you edit it together in the editing room. And as that's coming together, at some point, John Williams comes into an edit bay with Irvin Kirscher and George Lucas. And they do what's called a spotting session, which is where they decide where music should go and where music shouldn't. And what it should sound like. Oh, this should feel really evil and ominous. This should feel kind of light and playful, like the droids. This should feel kind of suspenseful. We don't know what's going to happen. Yoda should feel like magic, right? These are all the discussions that have happened. This has all been very well documented in various making up books and documentaries. But the point is, is that John Williams set about writing a lot of music for Empire, as I told you. So, um, you know, in looking at this and putting it together, I was astounded at how different it was. Um, you know, you, you, look, you hear these stories, but to actually see it up on the screen is pretty, is pretty amazing. So, we've got a lot to get through today. Um, I wanted to show you almost everything. There's so much omitted music in Empire that uh, we actually don't have time to show it all. But we have time to show most of it. So that's what we're going to do. And it's not the only film that has omitted music in it, but it certainly is a gem. It's a classic. It's many people's favorite. Everyone's got their favorite, but it's one of my personal favorites from childhood. So you guys want to see it? Great.
Well, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, John Williams went back to Andal Studios in Denham, England and recorded this score with the London Symphony Orchestra. The first scene we're going to take a look at is an echo bass. This is right after Luke gets attacked by a wampa and Han Solo rides back into echo bass. Now notice while you're watching this, first we're going to show the scene as it has been for the last 35 years to get it fresh in our eyes and ears. Then we're going to show it again with restored music. And while you're watching this original, notice when the music ducks out and you just have the sound, the desolate sound of Echo Bass as the rebels are on the run from the Galactic Empire. Why don't we go ahead and take a look at this scene from The Empire Strikes Back. frame accurate, but there is enough compelling evidence, certainly, uh, in multiple sources, to know that at one point the music played something like this upon playback before they ended up with what you just saw. Let's check this out with the music put back in.
sign of life out there, General. Sensors are in place. You'll know if anything comes around. Commander Skywalker reported in yet? No, he's checking out a meteorite that hit there. With all the meteor activity in this system, it's going to be difficult to spot approaching ships. General, I gotta leave. I can't stay anymore. I'm sorry to hear that. Well, there's a price on my head if I don't pay off job of the hunt on the dead man. A death march is not an easy thing to live with. You're a good fighter, Solo. I hate to lose you. Thank you, General. Here it comes as we know it. Now we're back to you, Richard. Well, Your Highness, guess this is it. So long, princess. <laughs> Very different, right? <laughs> it's kind of like, I don't know what to make of that. It's a very different feeling scene. Uh, you know, we can speculate as to why. I mean, perhaps it's because Ridley Scott's Alien came out the year before, or it was a couple years before, and uh, had a very desolate feeling. But this, to me, uh, feels very much like... Uh, our heroes are back in this next summer blockbuster, the big sequel to this huge movie called Star Wars, and here comes Han, and, you know, and suddenly you get the... Right? So that comes back in. Uh, you've got an earlier introduction to Princess Leia's theme, but it definitely changes the mood of the movie. Now, looking at the next scene, of course, Luke Skywalker goes missing. One really interesting uh, fact about uh, The Empire Strikes Back, by the way, is that John Williams actually wrote a theme for the droids. How many of you guys know this or remember this? Yeah, it's the only movie that features this theme for R2-D2 and C-3PO, and it's kind of this cute little uh, flute line that's like... It's actually more like this. Right? So you'll hear that in there, and you'll hear that kind of extended. Now... In all of these scenes, just to kind of let you know what's going on, if you listen to the soundtrack, you've got a piece of music that's this long, the music in the movie starts kind of right here. Well, all you do is if you peel that back, you see it's one continual piece of music that was scored at a time when the movie was very mature and was very close to the final in terms of the final picture edit. So let's take a look at this next scene. This is Luke is Missing is what I call it. But uh, uh, this is where C-3PO and R2-D2 come out and explain that uh, Luke Skywalker hasn't reported back in, just to get it fresh in our eyes and ears. Your 
Tell Donald free before you reach the first marker. We'll see you in hell.
mind trying to freeze him up? <laughs> Don't say things like that. Of course we'll see Master Luke again. And he'll be quite all right. You'll see. Stupid little short circuit. Now let's watch this again. This one's a bit of a shock to the system. It's very different, uh, but I think you'll find it enlightening. Let's check it out, and then uh, I'd love to know if any of you have any.
All the patrols are in. Still no. Still no contact from Skywalker Solo. Mistress Lear, R2 says he's been quite unable to pick up any signals, although he does admit that his own range is far too weak to abandon all of them. Your Highness, there's nothing more we can do tonight. The shield doors must be closed. Close the doors. Yes, sir. R2 says the chances of survival are 725 to 1. and I'm sure you were asking yourself the same thing. Now, why was one decision made over another? Well, unless we're George Lucas or John Williams, we may never know, but we can certainly speculate. I've done a lot of mixing and working on a lot of projects. Oftentimes, music is used uh, in order to make sure that the audience is feeling what the filmmaker or the director is intending. Perhaps it's because that the threat is felt and too heavy, too heavily felt too early on in the movie. That if you pull it out, it'll be paced a little different. It'll feel a little bit more desolate. The wind will feel a little bit more dangerous. You're fighting against nature. And maybe later, when Darth Vader and the Empire show up, the music can be featured a bit more prominently. The majority of the scenes in this movie that have omitted music are in, indeed in the hot sequence in Empire Strikes Back. I've got one more. This one's really interesting. So let's just go ahead and take a look at this as is so we can hear it. I guess you don't know everything about women yet. Wait, wait. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
What was it? Droid of some kind. I didn't hit it that hard. Must have had a self-destruct. An Imperial probe droid. It's a good bet the Empire knows we're here. We better start the evacuation. And here comes the music. something about soundtracks in general. On every soundtrack, John Williams was given on every movie an opportunity to record what are called concert versions of some of his most popular themes, right? So, for example, uh, the Imperial March has just a concert version. It just plays from beginning to end. It's a three-minute piece. Uh, the same is true with Yoda's theme. These aren't necessarily how you hear them in, in the movie. In fact, Duel of the Fates and the Phantom Menace is the same way, if you remember that music video from 1999. Um, they actually cut the concert version of the Imperial March into that scene, but that's not originally how John Williams scored it. Why don't we go ahead and take a look at it, and you can hear the original version. Now, you'll notice that I had to pull the sound out because it was all mixed together with the, uh, with the TIE Fighters, but originally they had a different version of the Imperial March, as well as a lot of music beforehand. But take a look at this and see the threat growing as they call them into the command center. <coughs> I guess you don't know everything about women yet. Headquarter personnel reports to the command center. There's something wrong. Excuses me. Princess, we have a visitor. Picked up something outside the base zone 12 moving east. It's metal. Then it couldn't be one of those creatures. Could be a speeder, one of ours. No. Wait. There's something very weak coming through. Sir, I am fluent in six million forms of communication. This signal is not used by the lines. It could be an imperial code. This isn't friendly, whatever it is. Come on, Chewie, let's check it out. Mm -hmm. Inroads 10 and 11 to station 3.
it's not as up-tempo. That scene feels very different too, and, and it, it's interesting how they go straight from that comedy scene into this kind of threatening probe droid scene. So they pulled it all out. And in order to fix it, use the concert recording uh, for the Imperial March. Now, this next scene is really interesting for those of you that are horror movie fans. Uh, take a look at how this plays. Let's just play this original one really quickly. This is the Minoc sequence aboard the Falcon. I'm not afraid. You will be. You will be. Strikes Back, the way the story goes is you've got Luke over in Dagobah with Yoda, you've got Han and Leia and Chewie 3PO over here, and then you've got the Empire searching for the Millennium Falcon, and you're constantly moving back and forth in between all of them, right? Well, most times in the movie, every time you cut back to the Empire, it's bum, 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 right? This happens again and again. One of the things that I did in studying the music was actually started keeping track of how many times themes were used throughout these movies. Um, and it, it revealed some pretty interesting things. One is that, you know, you'll hear the main theme, bum, 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 bum. You'll hear it about 20 times in Empire. You'll hear Han and Leia's love theme maybe about eight times. You'll hear Yoda's theme maybe about 10 times. You will hear the Imperial March about 35 times <laughs> in The Empire Strikes Back. And five of those, plus five more, that were cut, right? But it is constantly showing up in this. And so, once again, when they cut back to the Empire, you hear the Imperial March, and then they score this entire horror scene, and it's interesting what it does to the big Minox scare. Let's take a look. I'm not afraid. You will be. You.
I'm really interested in your opinion of freaking me out. There's something out there. Where? Outside the cave. There it is. Listen. Are you crazy? I just got this fucking bag together. I'm not going to let something tear it apart. Oh, then I'm going with you. I think it might be better if I stay behind the garbage ship. Crazy, right? It's a different movie. Changes the scare, changes the whole thing. I mean, one could speculate that maybe it ruins the funny goggle moment, you know? Like, that's probably something that cracked everybody up on set, and once you put the scary music over it, it that's not the important thing. The Minoc thing is important. Maybe it's because the real danger is the space slug, right? So this is more like teenagers in a haunted house, like, oh my god, oh my god, what is this thing, you know? And if you put the music in it, it maybe hits it a little too hard. Instead of going down to complete silence and giving that really loud mine up. We just have a few more here. This one's uh, a little short, but it's interesting. Uh, when Luke Skywalker's on Dagobah, he's training. Uh, it's almost like he's, you know, like in video games, you call it grinding, like if you're playing World of Warcraft. <laughs> he's grinding through his Jedi training, and they just give it to you with the sounds of Dagobah. Let's check it out. Right here, here it comes. 
run! Yes, Jedi strength flows from the Force. But beware of the dark side. Anger, fear, aggression. The dark side of the Force of Easily they flow. Welcome to join your invite. If once you start down the dark path, forever will dominate your destiny. Consume you at will! Vader, is the dark side stronger? No. But this year more seductive. But how am I to know the good side from the bad? You will know when you are calm. A peace. Has you. A Jedi uses the force for knowledge and defense. Never attack. But tell me why I can't. No, no, there is no why. Nothing more will I teach you today. Clear your mind of question. And then they slowly fade the music up. wonderfully composed, well-written, well-done pieces of music that we've enjoyed on soundtracks for years. And I've certainly, along with my colleagues, cut them into dozens of Star Wars video games over the years. Uh, we know these pieces from the soundtracks. Maybe it didn't quite occur to us where they came from. This is where, right? Uh, that little bit of what they call Mickey Mousing, which is an old uh, film scoring term of when you score the action with your orchestra as it goes over the log. That kind of stuff. Very much changed uh, this scene. Uh, you know, in the, for the sake of time, um, I'm going to go ahead and move on. This is really the most interesting part of this entire conversation, is that the lightsaber duel between Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader on Cloud City was fully scored. And in the final movie, it plays something like this.
Well, uh, I have always found that scene to be absolutely terrifying. And uh, there's no music that plays. And I know that there's been a lot of talk about, especially in the early days, that the lightsabers were so tonal that we don't need music. The lightsabers are the music. Just the way the shield doors on Echo Base were almost the, the, the climactic music of that scene earlier on in this presentation. Let's take a look with the music originally written for the scene.
sports fan filmer, filmmaker, any of you out there? Yeah, quite a few of you. Great, great, great. I've done any sort of collective works of art or worked in entertainment, you know that you'll go back and forth in editorial, you'll try things, you'll see how they feel. Sometimes you'll vote, or if you have a director, he'll just tell you. you know. um, but uh, this originally had music in it. Let's take a look at it with music. It's a very, very different scene. Uh, listen for Yoda's theme in here. Take a listen. <laughs> on here, and in this original 1980 released vinyl album, for those of you younger, this is a vinyl album, there is an interview by Alan Arnold of John Williams, and John Williams has the following quote about the creative process, and I think this is interesting, keep in mind this was just 35 years ago in 1980, I would say that music in film is a very new thing relatively. We're just, we've just begun to understand the audiovisual process, the very subtle and complex affair that is seeing and hearing. How much do we hear when we see? How much do we see when we hear? How do these relationships change? How can we manipulate them? So this is a creative process. That's why I asked the filmmaker question from, me, from you guys. This is a creative process. There is no right or wrong answer, other than how it makes you feel. How do you pace 127 minutes of a motion picture exactly the way you want it? With more music, it's a little darker. Or it's a little less dark, it's a little lighter, you know? With uh, less music, it's much darker. There is no right or wrong answer, but, uh, but other than how it makes you feel. That scene, you can argue, was cut maybe because it felt like Luke had the upper hand. And without the music, he just feels like he's barely holding on. These are creative discussions that happen. We've, these music, we've seen these movies so many times that maybe it's a foregone conclusion that of course there's no music there. But what if there was? What if it was cut in a little bit of a different sequence, right? These are kind of the questions that, uh, that haunt creatives 
You know, certainly we know that, uh, that George Lucas had this very, same, this very same thing that he was constantly trying to do. He's trying to make it better. When you're trying to push technology, you're trying to push storytelling, when do you stop? When do you keep going? One other thing is that I've noticed, you know, in working in, in entertainment and in, in audio is that a lot of times uh, teams or directors or, or groups of creators will use music almost as a crutch. You know, I'm not really sure if uh, this is playing. Well, let's put some dramatic music in there and suddenly the scene comes to life. What I want to say about The Empire Strikes Back, and I want to leave you with this thought, is that um, in my estimation, this is a nearly perfect film as is. But that is not to say that it wasn't a lot of struggle and back and forth to get there. And, uh, you know, I think it shows tremendous confidence in the story and the character and the pace of the movie to omit music. It means that the director and George and John Williams know that this scene plays without it and plays very well. And uh, there's a certain level of maturity in The Empire Strikes Back. It's one of the reasons why I love it. Of course, we all love all the Star Wars movies, right? <laughs> Uh, but this one is truly, for me, because of my age and things, I think this one's really special, and uh, I love it as it is, but I think, I want to thank you all for indulging me in this little exercise here. Uh, we're out of time. But hey, you can find me on Twitter, I'm at Collins. I'll see you all over the next few days, and uh, I'd love to chat with you about it. How many of you guys liked some of the things you heard? Show of hands. Why don't we like it? pretty cool, right? How many of you like it as it is? Thank you all very much, and stick around. We've got Clone Wars, we've got Howard Kazanjian, and so much more here on the digital stage. Enjoy Star Wars Celebration! Celebrations spreads across the galaxy. On with only their microphones, two intrepid warriors are dispatched to the Anaheim system to focus the energy being created by thousands of assembled fans into full, fun-filled days of costumes, exhibits, screenings, exclusive merchandise reviews, celebrity guests, award ceremonies, tattoo competitions, and other surprises celebrating all things Star Wars. What secrets and mysteries will be revealed? Find out by welcoming our hosts of the behind-the-scenes stage, your source for the force, Jimmy Mack and Jason Swank. Goosebump-inducing moment was Chewie. 
we're home. So this really is a bit of a homecoming. Oh wow, they have lights. Wow, there's a lot of you. I like it better the other way. <laughs> Thank you. But uh, we're going to have a lot of fun, and I want to get right to it because you guys don't want to hear from me, you want to hear from our panelists. So we have a surprise panelist for you, too, just joined. So uh, let's get started right here, and with we'll begin with the Marvel Executive Editor, Mr. C.B. Sabalski. C.B.? Joining CB, Marvel editor, Jordan White. From Lucasfilm, senior editor, Jennifer Heddle. And your surprise, at least I was surprised, and I thought I knew what was going on today. But from Lucasfilm, the keeper of the holocron, Leland Chi. So uh, before I turn things over, which I'm going to turn things over because they know what they're doing. They've done a few of these things uh, in, the, in the past. But I just want to talk um, kind of in, in broad strokes about how with Marvel, or with Star Wars, returning to Marvel, how are you guys, we'll start with UCB, how are you striking that balance of honoring the past along with forging new territory? Because in so many ways, the slate is wiped clean. So to speak, yes. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think uh, what we all keep in mind when we're working on these books is just to be true to ourselves. I mean, I want to thank everybody here first and foremost because, as you may know, Star Wars was the highest selling comic in the last 25 years, and that's courtesy of you guys going out, supporting us, and writing the book. So thank you very much. And um, I think the way that we look at it is just we want to tell the stories that we think uh, should be told. Uh, first and foremost, you know, everyone on this panel are Star Wars fans. And a lot of the times those lines get blurred. A lot of the fans online are saying, oh, the editors don't know what they're doing, the creators don't know what they're doing. But we are living the dream jobs up here, and we're being able to tell the stories that we've had in our heads for years and years and years. And it's like being true to the core values of the Star Wars universe, being loyal to you know, uh, the goals that we set for ourselves at Marvel, and working with an amazing team of people keeps the books at the quality that, that we've achieved. Well, I'm glad that you brought up the, the industry records that you're breaking, which is just... Phenomenal, especially when you think about those numbers, from what I understand, don't even include digital downloads. No, not at all. So imagine if that wasn't available to lazy people like me <laughs> that don't run out to the stores but want to download it, it would be it'd be even crazier. And what I think is really cool is with so much attention on giving respect to the female fans, that the Leia book, right? Fangirls, the Leia book was the highest selling comic in the month of March. Absolutely. So that's pretty awesome. So anyway, Star Wars comes home to Marvel. We have an awesome panel. Folks, take it away. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Uh, we've got a whole bunch of great books. Uh, we had some in the intro slides. We'll go through them quick because you already got a CB. <laughs> wow, that's the old one. You actually found the one where they drew the you with the R2-D2 shirt. <laughs> oh, that's the one. There's me. 
Jen, and again, we didn't realize who did. But right. let's talk about the comics. I just sort of stuck my way there. <laughs> uh, first up, we got our main series, Star Wars, is coming out. Uh, that's the cover of issue five there. Uh, Jason Aaron and John Cassidy. Uh, how, how many people have been reading this book? So it takes place pretty soon after A New Hope. Uh, what we've seen so far is, uh, you know, they went uh, on a raid uh, on this uh, moon, Sign Moon 1, where it was a big uh, uh, vehicle building plant for the Empire, and they went to blow it up, encountered Darth Vader, things didn't go quite as planned, and afterwards Luke was pretty upset, because he didn't quite think he was living up to the Jedi ideal. Um, so, in this issue, uh, he's going to be going and trying to figure stuff out about that. Meanwhile, Han and Leia are getting into their own hijinks, uh, involving uh, being chased by the Empire, as is fun. <laughs> and that will be out in May, and then in June, we've got issue six, uh, in which a certain person who has been tasked with finding out who blew up the Death Star is going to catch up with Luke. Uh, I don't know if you know, did you know who has been tasked so far with finding out who that is? Boba Fett. Boba! Yeah, yeah, he, he both was asked to figure that out. So he's usually pretty good at finding stuff out, right? Uh, hopefully that will be a fun issue as well. Let's see what else we got. Ah, here we go. Issue 7 in July. This is going to be a real special issue. We haven't actually announced until just now who is drawing it. It's going to be drawn by Mr. Simone Bianchi. And it's going to be a special one-off issue that is going to be an adventure of Obi-Wan Kenobi on Tatooine. That's something Jason's been wanting to do since the beginning of the series, and we're very excited that we're able to do it. Uh, slip in between, between uh, story arcs, a little story about Obi-Wan. Pretty, pretty awesome and exciting. With, uh, I'm, I'm a big Obi-Wan fan. Is there everybody else out there particularly? Yeah. So, Jason has a really nice story to make that's going to tie a lot of these uh, one-shots that are going to be coming out over the course of the next few years together. And uh, you know, there'll be a really big-name guest artist like Simone on a lot of them, so we're, we're pleased as punch to be doing them. And then... Uh, the following, uh, the same month, in fact, both both issues in July, issue eight, will premiere our new penciler on the series, Stuart Eminem. He is pretty amazing. And he is so excited to be, I mean, that's the thing, everybody who's been working on these series has just been so excited to be drawing Star Wars. John Cassidy is such a huge Star Wars fan, and Stuart is as well. I don't, it's hard to say who's more of a fan, because they're both pretty passionate about it. Um, we, yeah, we like this this cover. Uh, Luke getting himself into trouble. He thinks he knows what he's doing. Hmm. <laughs> so, uh, so that's our first ongoing series we've got. Then we've got our other ongoing series, Darth Vader. Kieran uh, Gillen is writing that. Salvador LaRocca doing the art. Adi Granoff been doing most of the covers for it. Uh, in, ish, in this first story arc, uh, we've seen that Darth Vader has been in trouble with his boss. <laughs> um, he was, yeah, he was kind of took to task for, for letting that whole Death Star thing uh, fall apart. Um, even though it wasn't Vader's idea, he was kind of responsible for them getting the plans and getting away with it and all that. Uh, so he's trying to like earn his way back to the top while his boss is kind of going, eh, we, don't, we don't know if we like you so much. 
So one of the things he's been doing, he's, he's been going uh, off into the side and doing his own side stuff. Uh, he met up with this doctor named Dr. Afra. Um, I was told on Twitter that somebody was going to be cosplaying Dr. Afra. Is there anybody cosplaying Dr. Afra here today? Oh, oh, there. There. <laughs> yes! <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Later when the lights go up, we've got to come around for some pictures. Yes, yes, totally. Um, yes, and also the two droids that he met up, that he's now got working for him, Triple uh, Zero, who's kind of an evil protocol droid, and BT-1, the... What does we call it? A blastomech? I think. <laughs> um, so much fun. And now he uh, has his own little droid army synthesizer since they went to Geonosis as well. So in issue five, well, uh, you can see some lightsabers there. What's that about? <laughs> There's a yellow one. We don't even know about that. <laughs> uh, and then in June, uh, the, the end of the first arc. Uh, Emperor looks pretty pleased with himself, as always. Yeah, these covers are all uh, by Adi Granoff, who's just doing an amazing job with the artwork. Let's see what else we got. Uh, we, our very first miniseries has been going on, and as described earlier, Princess Leia by Mark Wade and Terry Dodd. because it was the f two issues came out. Uh, Mark Wade told me it was his first number one comic, which is hard to believe because he's done some amazing books, but I'll trust him. <laughs> uh, yeah, I love this cover. It's a gorgeous one. Uh, there's another, uh, that's another book where we have a cool new character, uh, Yvonne. I was hoping that somebody would cosplay as Yvonne because I was like, all you need is loose clothes. It's fine. <laughs> she's even wearing his little yellow jacket there. Oh well. <laughs> this has been a great series dealing with the fallout of the destruction of Alderaan, something that we don't really get to see them talk about. Uh, they don't have time to, for their sorrows in the movie, obviously. Uh, so we, get, we have time for it in the comics. <laughs> Leia has been going around trying to round up the, the survivors before, uh, of Alderaan before the Empire gets them and puts them away in jails or whatnot. Uh, and then our last issue of that will be out in June. Wow. And it'll be sad that that, that miniseries ends, but presumably something will come up after that. Hmm, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> presumably. <laughs> Our other ongoing series, Kanan, The Last Padawan. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Rebels is so good. Uh, we, we were so excited to be able to do this book to tie in with Rebels, and the fact that we get to tell such an important story is how Kanan survived Order 66 and what happened in the, the fallout of that is super, super awesome. Uh, so far, I think only the first issue is out, so, you know. Hopefully you guys like it so far. It's Greg and Pepe are just doing an unbelievable job. It's just so damn good. So I'm really excited for you guys to read the rest of it. And it's also fantastic that we have someone who actually worked on season right. one of Rebels and Rick Wiseman. So he knows the character of Kane and he helped develop him. Uh, so it's just fantastic to have that creative talent for him. Well, speaking of which, then I'll, I'll take the opportunity to announce as that. Uh, Greg is actually going to be writing the next arc of the series as well. At first, he was only on for the first arc, but now he's going to be doing the second arc as well. We're so we're so excited to have him on. He's so wonderful and talented. Um, there's the issue three cover. Uh, 
these covers are all by an artist named Mark Brooks. Oh, yeah, another Mark fantastic Brooks. job. Yeah, also a huge, again, also a huge Star Wars fan. Again, as soon as we announced we were doing these books, so many artists immediately emailed us saying, "I need to be doing this. I need to. I need to <laughs> in any capacity. Let, put me on covers. Put me on something." Uh, Mark is so good, so good on these. Um, all right, so. You may already know this because we sort of announced it a couple days ago, but we've announced our second miniseries, the one that will start a month after Princess Leia ends. Yeah. Lando. <laughs> we, we love Lando. We are so excited for this. Uh, it's written by Charles Soule. Uh, if you don't know him, he, he's been writing Inhuman, uh, Inhuman for Marvel. He wrote Death of Wolverine, which was a pretty great book. He's, oh, he writes She-Hulk, absolutely. A great, great book. Uh, and Alex Maleev is doing the art, who has done so many good things. Uh, he did Daredevil with Brian Bendis and Spider-Woman with Brian Bendis. And he recently did some Hellboy books. Terrific team. This book is so much fun. It also, again, as keep, in keeping with the, the bulk of the books we've been doing, it also takes place between A New Hope and Empire. So it's before Lando is on Cloud City, but, and I know this will make you sort of sad, it, it, it means Han already has the Falcon, so he doesn't have the Falcon. Sorry about that, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but, he, but, but that being said, the plot of this series does involve him flying a very particular mysterious ship. Uh, and Enough said. So. <laughs> I can't say too much about that. Oh, and yeah, Lobot's totally in it. <laughs> that, was the, that was the first question I got on Twitter when, when they announced we came out. Is Lobot in this? I'm like, yes, Lobot's in uh, Also recently mentioned was this, but now we can reveal the full creative team. Uh, part of the journey to Star Wars of Force Awakens initiative across all sorts of publishers. Uh, ours is called Shattered Empire. Greg Rucka is writing it. Marco Cacchetto is drawing it. They, if you don't know, they, they did a book together for us. They did The Punisher for us a while back. It was a great series. Yeah, they have fantastic chemistry as a creative team. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and Marco's been doing, uh, it's not Secret Avengers, uh, Avengers World. Avengers World. Recently. He's a terrific artist. This is going to be a lot of fun. Um, it's not just a series about them all partying at the Ewoks. <laughs> <laughs> it's got more of a plot than I would totally read that. Book. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> uh, also, so so that's some fun stuff. But also, uh, I know I know that there are probably a couple of fans out here of the, the Legends comics. I would imagine. <laughs> well, you can now read hundreds of Star Wars Classic Legends comics on the Marvel Unlimited app. Uh, if you it's like, it's like a it's like a subscription series uh, subscription to the sorry about that a subscription thing where it's like Netflix for comics you you go and you subscribe to it monthly fee and you get access to it says fifteen thousand Marvel titles and now that includes I think if not all of the Star Wars Legends comics then at least uh, at least five hundred it says over five hundred and I think they're all going to be coming it's going to have all of them just the first small yeah. out will be adding. Yeah, that, that includes all the original Marvel stuff from the mm-hmm. 70s, and then all the books that Dark Horse has published mm-hmm. all over the last 25 years, all the wonderful creators and wonderful stories that they've told. So if you don't have them, if you don't have them 
them yet, this is a great way to check out the whole the whole collection. Uh, and it also, uh, I should also mention, it also has new comics. Uh, it gets the, the new comics about six months after they come out, so it probably doesn't have any of our new Star Wars comics just yet, but around summertime they'll probably start popping up there. Yeah. All right. And that does it for our presentation. Now come, comes the part with questions. The very mysterious question. Oh, uh, and when, when we get to the audience questions, in just a second, uh, I wanted to say... Before you ask your question, can you tell us what is your favorite series we're doing so far? Uh, a little informal poll. That, that is assuming a lot. I assume too much, perhaps. But I don't know if we can hear you. Yeah, go ahead and raise your hand if you have any questions. But I wanted to start... Um, I have a question. I just want to get a sense of what you all do and you know day to day and how you uh, you know keep Star Wars going on in your respective field. Sure. Well, uh, I'm the editor of the of the books, uh, so I will work with the creators, with the writers and the artists, uh, along with my my assistant editor Heather Antos, and we will get let's say a script uh, from one of the artists and we'll, or from the writer, obviously. We'll read it, give any notes we've got, and then we'll pass them along to Jen, who takes over from there. Um, yeah, so I read what Jordan sends to me, and sometimes, you know, we'll discuss it amongst ourselves. Um, you know, sometimes I can tell instantly by looking at it, like, oh, we're not going to be able to do that, or maybe we tried to kill Darth Vader. Yeah, yeah, like let's not do that. Um, and then I share it with uh, the Lucasfilm Story Group. Um, who then gives their input, and um, Story Group is really involved at every step of the process, uh, you know, from a, a pitch to a detailed outline to the scripts to the art. Um, so my primary role is to kind of um, liaise between Marvel and the Story Group and, you know, just kind of sometimes, you know, find a middle ground where everyone can be happy and work out, you know, what's best for Star Wars and what's best for these comics. Um, and I should actually probably take the opportunity, since I'm here, just to mention that um, my colleague, uh, senior editor Frank Parisi, is actually going to be taking over Marvel moving forward. Um, I'm very sad to be leaving Marvel, because I love these books, and I will still be reading them, um, and probably like purposely reading all the Leia dialogue to make sure I'm okay with it. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, I'm going to be moving on to some other uh, other areas of Star Wars, but uh, you know, I'm still very much involved because I love these books so much. We'll miss you. <laughs> I'm the I'm the keeper of the holocron. What? what? <laughs> <laughs> he tells us when we're using the wrong. Uh, so uh, so now that we have this new sort of group, um, we have greater insight into what our story uh, story plans for Star Wars are across all all media. And we really wanted to all connect. So uh, one of the things, or the primary thing that we we do as a story group is to make sure that wherever we're telling a story, um, it doesn't conflict with maybe other other plans that we have. Uh, maybe there are opportunities in the future where a story might might uh, there might be a better time in the future to to do, tell that story. So we are able to inform Jet and the, the editors at Marvel uh, what the best plans are, what our plans are, and. Uh, Again, to just to make it a, a cohesive universe, so there's, there's, we try to to avoid conflict. 
And if these guys are all sitting up in the cockpit, I'm R2-D2 in the back of the Falcon, kind of just overseeing things, fixing any problems that might come up, helping out where need be with uh, the creators, with sales and marketing, and, you know, kind of just offering support as best I can, uh, you know, to make the books come out on time and tell the best possible stories. Talking of the hyperdrive. <laughs> Do we have our first question out in the audience? Are we out there? Oh. <laughs> Raise the lightsaber. <laughs> Raise it, it up. Oh. We got We're heading to the middle of the room here. Okay. What's your name, sir? Please stand up. Don't forget, what's your favorite book? I, cool. I had medium expectations, to be honest, but I was just blown out of the water. Good, good, good. And where are you from? Uh, Eugene, Oregon. Same question. Good beer up in Eugene. My, my question is more of a, a comment, I guess. Um, uh, I've, known, I've read all the comics. Um, I have them on subscription at my comic book store. Um, and I've noticed you've been performing a, a very delicate surgery of introducing the prequel movies to the original trilogy um, movies. Uh, like in Princess Leia, she sees a holograph of Queen Amidala. I almost cried. Uh, that was beautiful. So it was silent too, which made it all the more powerful, which is yes. fantastic. And a similar moment where Darth Vader's on Geonosis. Uh, he's asked, have you been here before? And he doesn't really reply, but he has a, a flashback. Um, also, just right in the feels. Um, so thank you for combining those two universes and making it feel right. Um, that's fantastic work, and it really and, and really, we don't see that as two universes. It's really one universe. Um, and you're, you're also seeing Clone Wars elements in there, and obviously we're doing Rebels comics on it. Uh, we have the, the Geonosian Queen thing, which wasn't in the films, but it was in Clone Wars. I mean, that's, to be honest with, with you, that's why I think the Darth Vader series works as well as it does, is because we have those three prequel films where we see so much of it from Anakin's point of view, and then in the original trilogy, we don't see any of it from his point of view. So by doing a book about him, it, it opens up so much more we can, we can show, knowing what we know from the prequels. It's, right. it's great. And I'm particularly uh, glad that we have a, an ongoing Darth Vader comic because he doesn't have a lot of dialogue in the movies. <laughs> we don't really know what he's thinking. We just kind of see a, a mask. Uh, and we don't really see emotion in, until return. Uh, and so it's nice to explore his psyche because I think he's one of the more important characters in the entire universe. Thank you very much. All right. And, uh, and uh, thank you for supporting your local comic shop and pre-ordering because it keeps those small businesses in, in, alive. I have a question that I wanted to ask you about deciding when to start. You know, it's interesting that uh, Jonah mentioned two universes, and Leland, you were correct to um, correct him, and it's one big universe, but it's so rich. There's so many uh, different eras to choose from. This how the books are all focused between, uh, with the exception of Canaan, between Star Wars and Empire. How was that decision made? Why that particular era? Uh, well, I think two, two reasons, really. One is that, first of all, our editor-in-chief always like to say it's the sweep spot for Star Wars because it's the time when you've got all the, the main characters uh, of the original trilogy like at their, like the, their, at their best, you know. Um, if you go between the, the 
between five and six, you lose Han Solo and things change. You know what I mean? So this is like the, the, the best place to, to be able to tell stories about all the characters that everybody loves from the originals. Also, the other th- piece of thinking was with the slate being wet clean, with, with the, the, the Legends line becoming Legends and the new canon starting, we figured, well, let's start where it started. Let's start right at the end of the very first movie and go from there and kick off the new, the new universe of comics right where it would be, right where we began the original universe of comics. So. Right, for Star Wars, that is still year one. Right. Plus, we have a little movie called The Force Awakens coming out. That uh, I mean, for some people, The Force Awakens is going to be uh, is going to introduce character. You know, a lot of people have grown up with 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 Han, Chewie, and Leia. But then, Force Awakens is going to also introduce a new audience to those characters. And so, really, that's where the where, where we were. We knew we were going to head to Episode Seven, and this would be a great way to get there and a great way to introduce uh, those characters to. To some of the characters, uh, to those characters in the movie, it seems hard to believe, doesn't it? That there could be kids out there that aren't familiar with who Han Solo is. Yeah. What? Yeah. Yeah. Does anybody here not know who Han Solo is? <laughs> <laughs> Don't raise your hand, please. <laughs> the, other, the other thing to think about is that that Star Wars is an international audience, mm-hmm. and there are people that did not uh, the, the films didn't release in certain countries, you know, uh, early on, so they. Some people have grown on. Oh, yeah. The prequel trilogy was is all they know about Star Wars because the original movies didn't introduce them. CB, where is where is Alex Malieff from? Uh, Bulgaria. Yeah, because he already he told me he originally saw the movies in Bulgaria in not in English, so he's like, oh yeah, some of the names I get wrong. <laughs> <And it's> like, <laughs> <laughs> Who do we have? I've got Brandon from New Jersey. Brandon, what's your favorite book? My question, this is a lighthearted question, are we ever going to see the murder bots, Triple uh, Zero and the Blaster Mech versus C-3PO and R2-D2? <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's a very good question. I don't want to see that. You don't want to see that? Why? Because you know that R2 and C and C-3PO have no chance. <laughs> C-3PO has no offensive capabilities or defensive capabilities whatsoever. I mean, it's called a Blasto Mech. Maybe you might you might see that. I would I think it'd be fun seeing how it turns out. You know, the fact that we have some editors up here, I'm curious about how you know because Star Wars dialogue is unique. How do you know when you've got it right? When does it feel like Star Wars the way these characters speak with each other? I, I think that's a really subjective uh, question and answer. I mean, especially since. Um, we kind of all have our own view of what Star Wars is. Um, you know, I mean, obviously we do have the films, but everyone has kind of the own their own version of that in their heads. Um, so, you know, when I'm reading it, my main uh, concern is just to make sure that I can hear the characters saying those lines in my head um, and that it feels natural. And, um, you know, there are definitely times where sometimes it doesn't feel natural. And, um, you know, the, and not just me, but, you know, the folks at Story Group, too, sometimes will say, I don't think Darth Vader would, you know, put it quite like this. Um, it's a little too casual or, um, you know, so it's just about making sure that it feels consistent with what we've seen on screen and that it feels um, just true to the characters. For who they are. Even if it's something that you wouldn't 
expect those characters to say, that they're saying it in a way that is true to who they are. I know issue five of Star Wars is one that I absolutely love reading the script for. And uh, for every script that I get in of Star Wars, I, I absolutely put on the soundtrack to listen to read it. <laughs> um, and that one blew me away and I was very much like, oh, this is, this is perfect, this is perfect. It's got some great Han and Leia scenes. It's got some great, well, I don't want to spoil too much. It's got some really good scenes of dialogue. Jason Aaron is very, very good at nailing that dialogue. All right, who do we have out there, Pete? Here in the middle of the room, we've got Ryan from Moreno Valley. Ryan, what's your favorite book? Uh, Vader, for sure. Uh, the dialogue there, Terry Gillen Rice, is just awesome. Uh, my question is, at the next celebration, is it possible we might see some celebration-exclusive covers for the comics? Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, I think uh, yeah, uh, we didn't do it this time. Yeah, it, was a, it was a time constraint this time. Yeah. You know, Reed, who helps run the show with Lucasfilm, is a strong partner as far as it. New York Comic Con and C2E2 where we do do exclusive covers every year so I would say without question uh, next hour celebration we will probably have some uh, exclusive covers which would be great excellent um, you know a number of the books are concurrent with each other mm -hmm. what are some of the challenges with that I know they were talking about uh, one of the writers was quoted as you know if uh, Star Wars is Darth Vader on the Tuesday then Darth Vader is sort of him dealing with more of the um, intricacies of the politics and his own sure. struggle to ascendancy. And before you answer that question, that, that's, I just want to comment that that was one of the things that we never did with Dark Horse. And that was that was something that Marvel came in, uh, and it and it just it just blew us away. It was like two, they could interact. That was, it, was, it, was, it was just so revolutionary for us. We we just sort of been in that train of train of thought that each each series had to be in a different era, and, and the ability to cross over is just something that's really exciting. Right. Yeah. I mean. That, yeah. That was definitely something we wanted to do. It's, I mean, it's something we obviously do with our, our normal comics. If you read, you know, X Men, you can also read Uncanny X Men, and they'll probably sync up in certain ways and interact with each other. And um, it's been it's been great doing that. Uh, Jason Aaron and Kieran Gillen uh, have actually done this sort of thing before when they wrote Wolverine and the X Men and uh, Uncanny X Men at the same time. And basically, what we do is we. It's not like they will help plan each other's books, but we'll be very, very, uh, <laughs> I forgot all words, uh, we'll all get together and talk about what the stories are going to be and how they can weave together, so uh, obviously Kieran's first arc of Darth Vader spun right out of Jason's first arc of Star Wars, and they'll kind of come back together again at the end of the first arc, uh, and then uh, there will definitely be ways that they will interact in even bigger ways in the future. So collaboration is very important, and very much so. Collaboration between the creators, but also between Marvel and the, the editors at the story group at, at Lucasfilm. Oh, yeah. you know, uh, Jason and Kieran are intimately involved when we go out to these creative summits at Lucasfilm, where we meet with the story group, pitch ideas, throw it out, we get a little feedback, we kind of come up with an overall plan, and then they then they go back and get them to the nitty gritty and you know write the plots and the scripts. But everything is you know everyone is able at one point to throw out ideas, and it's a really collaborative effort between the two teams. And we're very much involved at this very start. Yeah. Anyone out there? Pete, where I, are you? I've made my way to the dark corner over here. You may not be able to see us. We're way over on the side. But I'm here with Jake from Arizona. Jake, what's your favorite book and your, and your question? Well, uh, I haven't really supported the comics yet, but uh, uh -huh. after looking at this panel, I'll definitely look into it. Cool. All right. Give a favorite character. <laughs> Give a favorite character. Who would you love to see in the comics? Oh, yeah, good question. Uh, all right. Uh, like
the question is. <laughs> I think you Who would you question. love to see in a comic? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, um, no pressure, no pressure. Uh, I think mostly maybe bringing back Soken to some of the comics. That'd be pretty cool. Cool. Okay, and, and now your question. Extensively, are you going to be dissecting the time between episode five and episode six? Because there's all like that fighting with the Empire and the Rebels. I just wanted to know if you guys will be covering that at all. Between five and six? Yeah, uh, I'm sure we will get to that. Uh, I mean, right now we're mostly focused on between four and five, but there's there's a lot of story to tell there as well. You know, what went on with Luke? And yeah, I mean, we. I, I would say you know the intention isn't to tell. The story between four and five indefinitely. No, eventually <laughs> we will get to the. So end. we are hoping to actually move forward through the timeline eventually, yes. But that means we lose Han. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's the problem. Uh, there are other interesting people <laughs> that we can tell stories about, and we can have like flashbacks and stuff. Besides, Han, uh, Lando puts on Han's clothes, it'll be the same. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lie, I won't <laughs> Right. I, I wanted to ask you about uh, Vader a little bit sure. um, and, and where he is at at this point. Um, you know what we know of him. You, you can't help but feel a little sorry for him. I mean, there's there's a there is sort of an aspect of the sympathetic villain. How do you really? just keep no, in mind okay. he kills children? Maybe it's just <laughs> <laughs> he kills children. No, you know the lost love and he's been lied to. I, I absolutely. I feel bad. Maybe I'm the only. Does anyone else feel bad for Darth Vader? <laughs> challenges in keeping with what we know of Vader in this era where he is just pure evil. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, because that's the thing. As, as, as much as we're, we're having fun at your expense there, uh, <laughs> we, we do hope that you're kind of rooting for him, even though he's the worst guy in the room at all times. <laughs> uh, because, yeah, you know, he, he's got challenges in front of him, and we, well, we know what's going to happen. We know he, by the time Empire starts, he's the most feared person in the Empire. Um, so, yeah, it, it's fun to watch him get there. It's fun to watch his uh, his, his kind of machinations and his evil plots. He's going to do some really bad stuff. <laughs> now, I mean, when you, when you watch the films, the last thing you see in Star Wars is that he's arguably responsible for the destruction of the Death Star, and then the next movie, he's got a promotion. Right. So it's, it's kind of like how the yeah, real world works. I mean, that, I think that's one of the... <laughs> You look around at work, you're like, how the heck I get from one? <laughs> I mean, one of the great things about the comics, this, these comic series, is we sort of bridge that gap. We, we see how he gets to be Darth Vader from A New Hope to Darth Vader in Empire Strikes Back, which is, which is a huge thing. And, and it has to do with what, what happens in this comic. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of a sudden, Vader has a goal of his own. He finds out this, this vital information and... and it completely it gives him hope, and he did not have before. A new hope? <laughs> uh, well, one of the things I was really excited by, too, is when in our very first meeting, you got, uh, the Squirt Story Group suggested to us that we save uh, Tag from the destruction of the Death Star and put him in charge of Vader, because Vader hates it so much. <laughs> He's so mad. 
Tag is just like he thinks he thinks the force is nonsense. Oh, that's great. How did how did he how did he get out? Well, because he's the head of the of the fleet, so he didn't stick around on the Death Star. He was like, I'm gonna go back to my Star Destroyer, please. Thank you very much. I mean they were busy checking out Dantooine. Sure. Yeah, exactly. like, they got a, they've got a whole all the neighboring systems that they had taken. I, I, I think we all just assumed that he uh, he went down with the ship, so to speak. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we, we carefully looked at the films, and he's not in any of those shots. Marty's in those shots, but not okay. Poor Marty. Who do we have out there, Pete? I brought Kevin from Arizona into the light. Oh, I'm sorry, Atlanta. So even further from into the light. So, all right, Kevin, what's your question and your favorite book? Uh, my favorite book is Princess Leia. It's nice. amazing. You really got her voice. It's great to hear about the old Iranian culture and everything and get a new perspective on what you're doing. My question is, I love the character specific minis and they're just a great thing. Thank you for doing that. And I want to know if you have any plans to do any more of these in different time periods because I would really love to see things like Big Dark Lighter and Wedge Antilles and Rose Water. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, we're definitely going to do more. Uh, as for whether they're going to be in more time periods, um, for now we're kind of focused on this one. But that being said, keep your eye on things. There's going to be more to announce in the future. Yes. You know, Star Wars isn't really known for its subtlety, especially in romance. If you look at Anakin and Padme, things heat up very, very quickly uh, for them. So as you are playing around in this era, Han and Leia... And, and, and maybe talk a little bit about extending that courtship a little bit so that, you know, by the time we get to Empire, they're having their first kiss. Or um, are they? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's definitely um, a little bit of a, a, a delicate uh, a dance um, because you need to have them... You want that, that banter, that spark, because that's what we love about them so much. Um, but obviously we can't, yeah, really bring them quite to that point that they're an empire. But I think it's really important to remember that um, in empire, when the two of them have that conversation in the hallway at Hoth, I mean, he's, they both know that they want each other. Like it's pretty obvious from their I mean it's pretty obvious from their dialogue. You know, he's saying you want to kiss me and you know, I mean especially, you know, in the the other take, uh, for the true obsessives who watch the other take where he talks about applying some heat. Um, so I you know, as a as a longtime Han and Leia fan, I, you know, I've always interpreted that there's definitely been some stuff that's happened between them. I mean maybe not an actual romantic kiss, like in <laughs> Empire. Um, but, you know, I feel like they both know what's going on. So it's, it's part of the fun is going to be sort of developing that. And we're, we're making sure that in these, these early issues that we're not taking it too far, because obviously this is a journey that they take, and we don't want to, you know, go too quickly. I mean, I think one thing you can say for, also for Han Solo is that... <laughs> He's not going to stop trying. He, well, sure, but also he's really good at screwing things like that up. Yes, so. exactly. exactly. He's, not, he's not as smooth as Lando, that's for sure. No, no he's not. Um, uh, I think you can look for a big stumbling block in issue six. Uh, yes. Uh, some good stuff there. Awesome. Who's out there now? I've bounced over to the other side. We're over here. I've got Catherine from Hollywood. Catherine, what's your favorite book? 
Well, I was going to originally say Kanan because I really like all of Rebels and I really liked the Kanan comic, but Triple Zero and Darth Vader kind, <laughs> yes. of, kind of won it for me. And I was a former archaeology major, so Alfred's kind of special too. So it's definitely a, both of those. Kanan and Darth Vader. Excellent. And what's your question? So my question is, you know, kind of tiptoeing towards the Marvel aspect. I've been following, you know, all the miniseries, the Netflix original series for the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and there's sort of this whole everything ties in together. So things that you've seen in the television show are directly relevant to the films and things like that. You guys have bounced around the word canon, so because all the comic series are canonical, does that mean that they're going to directly tie into the film franchises, to the book franchises, and is it going to be that same sort of terranium where everything is related and everything's addressed in all mediums? Well, that's yeah. possible. <laughs> we're, always, we're always looking for ways to make those connections, absolutely. Sure. And, and there, there's definitely certain times in the, sto- in the stories that we get Marvel specific directions to do certain things because we do have an agenda. And also, we can just say yes because, the, for example, the Star Wars series we're doing is going to lead right into episode five. You know, in the, the previous panel, we were uh, talking about some of the new novelizations that are coming out. Uh, from from Disney and Alex Bracken, who is here, had a great comment about uh, Luke and how at the end of A New Hope he's moping and sad because, as Alex put it, this guy that he met six hours ago uh, just died, but Leia, who's comforting him, just lost her entire world. <laughs> Um, and I thought that it's so great that in the Princess Leia that you're you're dealing with how she's coping with with that grief and that it's it's so profound. And so how do you do that and yet still keep it a comic book and keep it light? Well, I think that um, it's not. I, I feel like that's not too difficult with Leia because Leia is a, a woman with a mission, with a purpose. And, you know, we know that she's not someone who's going to let her grief stop her um, from doing what she feels needs to be done. Um, And what I like about uh, how this, you know, kicked off in in the first issue of the Leia comic, you know, is that you see a lot of this unfolds because she's she's chafing at not being able to do something. She keeps asking, you know, the leaders of the rebellion, like, I I don't want to be just some figurehead. I need to do something. And when, you know, she finds out that Alderanians are possibly being targeted, you know, it's, it's something that obviously is important to her because it's her people, but it's also something she can do. And something that she can do, hopefully, she, you know, she has the goal that it will help the rebellion by bringing more people into the rebellion and will obviously subvert the empire as well. So I think that, you know, the important thing about Leia is that while obviously she's grieving, you know, what she's gone through is, I mean, something literally, I don't know if any of us can imagine, (laughs) losing your entire planet. Um, But, you know, she's such a, a driven person that, I mean, she's the person who, you know, when they arrived at Yavin, you know, they're saying, oh, we're so sorry about Alderaan. She's like, there's, there's no time to grieve. Like, we have to get this done. And it doesn't mean she's not grieving. Right. It just means she's not doing it there. And she knows that her grief can't slow things down. Right. And then Luke got a medal in a spiffy yellow jacket and was like, Ben who? <laughs> 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 but 
but that jacket, it was a funny story about the yellow jacket that it's, it's featured in, in, the, in the series and then in Stuart Eman and Joseph Keep. It was, we had, when we had our first meeting with Lucasfilm, we brought a bunch of different artists to propose who we would see what they would like to draw the series. And we went through a number of different top Marvel artists, and everyone gravitated towards John Cassidy. And we hadn't told anybody that we were putting them up for consideration to draw the Star Wars books yet. So John Cassidy, we called, eventually called up John, and John's like, wow, Star Wars, I love Star Wars, I would love to do it under one condition. Has to be the yellow jacket. <laughs> and I was like, what? He's like, I love that jacket. <laughs> and then when we went to the archives, the first thing you wanted to see was the yellow jacket. This is crazy. It's a cool jacket. Who we have out there? I've got Kevin from Chicago. I'm over here, uh, stage left. All right. Is that is that stage left or stage right? I don't know. <laughs> stage right. All right. Kevin from Chicago. Hi guys. Um, Marvel did the best movie adaptation of all time with Empire. Six issues really got to cover the material very, very well. There's a new movie coming out. Uh, is it too early to say if there's going to be an adaptation for Force Awakens? No, we don't have the rights to Batman vs. Superman. <laughs> <laughs> no, I said movie, not embarrassment. for our own films the year that they come out just for security reasons and you know for protecting assets and intellectual property so you know we won't be doing one for Force Awakens at the time of the film. Um, that being said you mentioned the Empire Strikes Back one uh, I should mention we are going to be reissuing all the, the three original adaptations that Marvel did uh, recolored with modern coloring over the course of the year they're going to be really beautiful yeah. looking. Yeah. Screen accurate color. Yes screen accurate color. Just a tiny follow-up with that then. Sure. Um, since you said John Cassidy, you announced that Stuart was coming out without you leaving the Star Wars universe. As somebody who likes to take his time to draw stuff, is there any chance <laughs> that when that came out, um, nice. the adaptation might look really familiar for new <laughs> Star Wars comic readers? Oh. <laughs> All we can say is that issue six is not John's last project involving the Star Wars universe at this point for Marvel. With, um, with so much on the horizon, uh, Leland, I'll, I'll address you, and there's, there's just so much Star Wars coming. Um, how far out are you guys planning in terms of these, these projects, and what does, that, what does that plan look like? <laughs> Not that level of detail, but uh, the slide, Jordan. No. <laughs> there is a lot of planning going on, and there are a lot of meetings that are happening. Yes. Okay. So you're. It goes far. Far. It goes far. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So these we... guys know what they're doing tomorrow. No. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And next week. And next year. Right. There's. There's. Yeah. There's. There's series that we're not announcing yet that would be like like a year away probably. So we've got a lot of plans. Pete, Brendan from Long Beach is right here with me. Brendan, what's your favorite book? Uh, I actually haven't started any of the Marvel series yet. I don't know. All right, get out. No <laughs> question. Let me guess what your favorite character is. Uh... <laughs> so, um, so my question uh, is: so um, there's a lot of legend stuff that has come out over the years, and I'm wondering, like, 
are there going to be any attempts at some point to canonize certain story arcs or continue like previously established arcs at all? And um, if so, like how long would we have to wait for anything like that? Or, we, I mean, there's no, there, there's no definite rule of that will never happen. We don't have any plans to do it right now, but it would be in a, on a case-by-case basis if a story called for it. Uh, if we were talking to a writer who had a really strong story and saying, well, it would sort of tie in with this thing from the old comics, we would bring that to the story group and they would be able to make the decision. I know uh, in speaking with Dave Filoni in the past about the Clone Wars, he would say that they have so many characters fighting for screen time. How do you guys go about managing that? You're in the original trilogy uh, era here, and you've mentioned Boba Fett. Uh, how do you decide who gets in, who's out, who waits? It's all a balance. Uh, I mean, again, obviously, in many ways, you know, we all want to play with all the toys that we knew when we were when we were young, so we, we do try to use a lot of the characters from the movie, but at the same time, we do want to introduce new characters as well, and um, the, the, the main Star Wars book is pretty focused on, you know, the Han, Leia, and Luke as the main characters of it, so they're the, the central spotlight, and then uh, other characters get, you know, more, more like cameos or pop up as a, as a villain or this or that. Uh, in the Vader book, we have a lot more stuff that we we have to bring in a lot more characters. We're, we've been adding characters, and we've been bringing back other characters. We definitely have more familiar faces coming up, and also more all new characters. Uh, it, it is tough because we want to we want to show everybody, and we want to use everybody. But you know, you can't you can't do it all the time. Yeah, I mean, the trick is we don't want the Star Wars galaxy to start feeling small. Um, and if you just kind of use the same characters and settings over and over again, it starts to feel that way. So, but again, at the same time, we know, you know, characters are popular and obviously fans want to see them. So it's definitely, um, it's something that's, yeah, handled on a case-by-case basis. Sometimes a writer will want to use a particular character and, you know, we may say, well, you know, we love this character too, but we think this is maybe not the right you know, venue in which to use them, and maybe, you know, for something else. Or maybe so, it's just not the right time. Or it's just not the right time. Um, so that's definitely something that is an ongoing discussion, and it's definitely handled on a case by case basis. And it, it's been amazing that how supportive of the folks at Lucas have been for us to actually create new characters and, you know, uh, in the series. You know, great creators is one of the tenets of the of Marvel that hires, you know? And, right. Creators create, and we're encouraging them to create. And well, some of the stuff we've come up with, like Jordan mentioned, is coming out. It's just phenomenal. I think everyone's going to be really excited. We're just blown away sitting here. How many people over the panels over the course of the weekend have mentioned Triple Zero and Afra? You know, all yeah. these new characters that have come up in the last three months from the Star Wars uh, comics. So you know, we got a long plan ahead of us. So we're just hoping that there's going to be a lot more characters that start catching on. There's a bunch of new characters in Lando as well uh, yes. that are awesome writers and great. Yeah, all yeah. ladies, I'm assuming. <laughs> Who do we have out there? Jeff from Victoria, British Columbia has a question, but before that, what's your favorite book? Uh, right now, I'm really enjoying Princess Leia. Cool. Uh, yeah, it's been great. Um, what I wanted to ask was, uh, and we've kind of brushed on it here and there throughout the panel, uh, in how difficult it is to find the particular voice of the character, uh, specifically with Darth Vader, who in the original trilogy was a uh, man of relatively few words, but they were always very forceful and direct words, and now you have to do an ongoing series with him where, you know, 
will run into Darth Vader's day-to-day -day instead of his, you know, movie-focused laser action. Uh, do, is that really difficult to find a way to make him sound like Darth Vader when he's not talking about something super plot-driven? I think it was issue two that the first draft of issue two script, Darth Vader talked a lot more. And we were like, and, and you guys were like, yeah, he definitely shouldn't talk that much. And so I was like, yeah, that's true. And so when, at the time, Kieran was working on issue three, and I said to him, let's make sure he doesn't talk as much. And he was like, oh, yeah, of course. He really, really shouldn't talk that much. And so he definitely, I think, leaned into it more and more. And I, it's, it's pretty amazing how much he can get across with very few words now. Um, and now yeah, that we have a character like Afra, yeah, she right, just talks about it. Of, yeah, and it's—I mean—it's such a tribute to Salva as well. The mm -hmm. way he can communicate emotion just from the tilt of Vader's head, or you know, it's just when you have that level of talent working on a character, it makes it so much easier. And you know, with, with Star Wars, there's so much classic dialogue in those in, in associated with the characters. And we want to honor that, but not always retread it. You can only, you know, never tell me the odds, or I find your lack of faith disturbing so many times, you know, you really don't want to use it because those lines are really classic from the movies. So it's a way of using the, the language from the films as a starting point, and with twists of phrase, with listening to the intonation, the banter, and kind of different, cho different choices of words to say kind of the same thing, but keep that kind of, you know, uh, rhythm going with the dialogue. We have another question out here. We have time for one more? Yeah, we could, I think we two more. Two more, all right. Uh, Graham from Dallas. Graham, what's your favorite book? Um, the original um, Star Wars, the one that they're running right now, the Simon thing and everything. Um, I was, I mean, as far as the comic characters that you've introduced, I would say I really like the murder bots, even though I've only read the first issue that people appeared in. So, um, very charming. Yeah. Anyway, um, I. Remember that um, Darth Maul's Son of Dathomir was an idea that was carried out through the Clone Wars Legacy Project, which um, started over at Dark Horse. Would you be interested in doing any... Like, has there been any discussion about doing the other unused scripts of the Clone Wars since there is plenty of ground to cover? I feel like that's always on the table. Yeah, yeah. Really. absolutely. Yeah, just, you know, it depends on what's... Story arc. I, I was. I don't know if anyone wants the Bad Batch arc yesterday. I'm um, talking about Clone Wars. But I would love to see a Bad Batch. You know, pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just a, the question of you know they, those, those stories are out there, and it's a question of what's the best forum to tell them. And yeah. Marvel is totally into doing comics of them if if, if Lucas is up for it. But we'll we'll figure it out uh, as we go. All right, one more question. We're going to wrap up with Harry from North Hollywood. Harry, what's your favorite book? So far, I've been interested in read Kanan. Okay. All right. And Harry has a movie question for you. What do you think, uh, in your own opinion, How the, do you think the Star Wars sequels will be just as good as they will be good <laughs> when it comes out? <laughs> Leland? They'll be better. Did you say they look better? They'll be better. Wow. I, I mean, I, that trailer was so great. I, I, I'm super excited for it. Uh, I don't know as much about it as the story group does, but I, everything I know, I love. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's so hard. You know, I know a lot of what happens, but it's, it's so different to actually see it when it's on the screen than what you see on the page. 
but you know what I've seen so far looks amazing. And, and, and I mean, obviously, JJ is such a huge fan of Star Wars. Um, it's it's inter interesting to have uh, a huge fan of Star Wars guiding Star Wars. He he knows what what we like as an audience, what we like about Star Wars. So uh, I'm I'm very very uh, excited about. It. What you guys are all going to see. I thought he was talking about Avengers Age of Ultron in theaters May 1st. How's <laughs> <laughs> that one going to be a series? Yeah, you saw uh, it. I, I saw it. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's, it's wonderful. And I just hope, you know, <laughs> that everyone likes it as much as we do. And, you know, Joss has taken things to another level with our franchise. And I know that JJ is going to do the same with the Star Wars characters. So it's going to be nothing but kick ass films. <laughs> Thanks to our panel today. C.B. Savosky, Jordan White, Jennifer Heddle, and the Keeper of the Holocron, Leland G. Leland, thanks for the special surprise appearance. So next I want to introduce uh, our, our panelists uh, who are going to present a very interesting topic, comic art, this area that's exploding uh, just in general, but also for Star Wars. And so, uh, please welcome David Mandel, Kelvin Mao, and Jonathan Rinsler. Um, 
and then try to get to the bar and have some scotch. Let me just like to add, I've seen David's collection. There's one hell of a collection. Thank you. He probably has the premier Star Wars comic book especially his earlier issues and uh, uh, things to do with the movie. And one of the cool things, and we'll sort of talk more about that as we get going, that bad, that boring? One of the interesting things about Tom Carter collecting today is, is that George actually still has a collection and will a huge collection, and a lot of times when artists, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, when artists draw things for current uh, comics, which is now with Marvel and whatnot, um, George still gets a sort of right of first refusal to buy the original art, which of course makes it very difficult for everyone yes. looking to start collecting or add to their collection, which is sort of something interesting. So let's kind of jump into it. You guys can ask if you really have a, a really crazy question as we're doing, go ahead, and otherwise, you know, at the end, have to leave plenty of time, and hopefully there's something to be said there. Um, so anyway, let's start right from the top with, this is, uh, where we go? Look at that. So this is the original Howard Chaykin hand-drawn comic art. He was the penciler. The anchor was uh, Tom Palmer, I believe. And this is the Star Wars number one comic. So if you, if you guys bought that comic, and obviously there was a logo and a price that was kind of colored and whatnot, but this is how those things start. So this is the Star Wars number one comic, and uh, I just sort of wanted to use that as a jumping off point. Um, and basically, there's sort of a history of Star Wars comics, and uh, again, if you guys read, you guys, you guys come on readers, but also, uh, Howard Chaykin also was the first person to draw, the uh, wrote the first Star Wars poster, also. Exactly, the Comic-Con giveaway poster, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, yes, okay. which he drew because he was going to be the artist, uh, if, if memory serves, they really liked, George in particular liked his style, it reminded, he had a very illustrative style, reminded them a little bit of what Macquarie was doing, so they kind of handpicked him based on a couple of uh, books he was doing, Cody, Starbuck, and something else. Star Wolf. Star Wolf. Wasn't that Star Wolf? I think that was one of them. There were like two different ones. Um, and they were kind of space offers unto themselves. And so Howard was handpicked. Um, and uh, as Howard likes to say, if he'd known that all these years later there'd be a room of people uh, staring at this, he'd have spent more time on it. But anyway, I uh, can't put words into Howard's mouth. Um, so the history of Star Wars comics kind of breaks down into obviously Marvel Comics, who published from 77 to 86. Uh, then a little company called Blackboard Publishing, which published Star Wars 3D, which was a three-issue comic run that was kind of small and interesting. Then Dark Horse, which is what most people are familiar with, starting in uh, early 91 and going until quite recently, and then Marvel again. And along, in between the, that sort of licensing, there were the newspaper strips, which started back in 79, and then there was some publishing in Japan and some other things. So that kind of is a little bit of an overview of the history of comics uh, in general. And again, so much of the original art collecting is connected to the, uh, the, the overall history. And I personally concentrate more on the early Marvel stuff, because that's the stuff, you know, like anything else, that's the pure nostalgia. <coughs> the comic art is mostly, uh, the collecting is mostly based on the nostalgia. But if you read yeah. junior high or high school, generally speaking, that's what you go back and seek. So if you read Dark Horse, these were first. 
Star Wars comic, that probably would be wrong. Uh, we read comics in that. I, uh, I was seven in 77, and uh, when Star Wars came out, I remember sitting on the beach reading the oversized treasury, uh, a big size Star Wars comic. And then I remember going to the ocean, and my father almost grabbed me two of us. So good memories. And so, and like everything else, as uh, for those of you who are happy collecting love, uh, those things that are our youth, the prices have exploded. And it has happened for regular comic art. You might have seen stories of like Todd McFarlane's Spider-Man, who was a big Spider-Man artist, his brothers selling for like $500,000. Frank Miller, uh, Dark Knight Returns, his Batman story, uh, also almost $500,000. So we're seeing insane numbers. First uh, Wolverine appearance. Yep. First Wolverine appearance in Incredible Hulk uh, 180, the last page where Wolverine first appears, drawn by uh, Herb Trimpey, who sadly died uh, earlier this year. That sold for $650. Yeah. Now, not all comic art is that expensive, but again, it is something that is just exploding collectibles-wise, which obviously does make newer stuff a little slightly more enjoyable because it's something else. It's cheaper. Um, so I was talking about the, to talk about Marvel for a bit, I was talking about the treasury. So this is the cover to the oversized Star Wars number one treasury. This is by uh, Cochran and Coburn. Um, you know, each issue, they did, the, they did the two issues, issues one through three, because the original adaptation is six issues, so one through three, then the second issue, uh, four, five, six. Um, and for these big treasuries, they did original front covers, original back covers, and various pinups that differentiate them from the original six adaptations. And you know, the comics themselves, you can still find you know, a really nice condition copy for you know, 30, 40 bucks, which is very nice. Um, the original art, not so much. This came out of a collection in Florida, and I had to buy it, oddly enough, uh, both Christie's and Sotheby's used to do comic book auctions. Uh, and I bought this out of one of those. So again, not the reason. I'm buying it out of the love of it, but unfortunately, other people love it too. So that's the, the classic collector's problem. Uh, Dave Cochran also uh, is well known for being uh, one of the main uh, X-Men artists. And it's, uh, it's kind of interesting that you draw Star Wars. And that will be, and again, I think as we talk a little bit about criteria of collecting, there are things that are worth money, and again, I don't mean to make it all about money. There are things that are attractive to collectors for a variety of different reasons, the key issues, the talent involved. And what's interesting is, this is the Star Wars 1 cover, so it may mean something to a lot of people in this room because it's the Star Wars 1 cover. But to somebody else, somebody may love Dave Cockrum as the you know, co-creator of the new X-Men. He did all the costume designs. He did a lot of the character creations. So they might be interested in this because of Dave Cockrum, which, of course, has nothing to do with Star Wars. So people come out to collect it for a lot of different reasons, and uh, just kind of makes it interesting. No one else has thought So uh, uh, Marvel Comics, just to give a little more uh, information, uh, they did a 107-issue run. The original first six issues were done by Chaykin. Uh, issues 39 through 44 were the Empire Strikes Back adaptation by Al Williamson. Uh, Return of the Jedi is a separate miniseries, also by Al Williamson. And then there was also Marvel UK. I don't know if you guys have ever seen any of the Marvel UK reprints. They were reprinting the American stories, but they were also actually sometimes like, 
you like. So they were sometimes publishing really interesting little making of movies, and there's some actual really interesting information in those Marvel UK things, which I realize has nothing to do with comic art, but again, it's all sort of tied together. How was this also the renowned artist for drawing Flash Gordon in the 50s? In the 50s and 60s, he was one of the great uh, EC artists of all this wonderful, just, you know, he was, he and Frazetta were, uh, were sort of, uh, they're just two of the best guys that ever sort of used sort of a pen and brush and uh, just a, a beautiful, beautiful style. And uh, Williams in particular was who George actually wanted to do, wow, do the script. Right, and George really loved it. Um, I think, you know, especially the, the Flash Gordon, which we obviously know was, you know, so important. So here uh, is the Star Wars 3 cover. Uh, this is by Chaykin, and the anchor is Tom Palmer. Um, and, you know, these covers, again, you know, when I look up at them, it's just, it's, you know, it's just, it's like, you know, it's like a hard line of nostalgia. It's just, you can remind, to me, this is what collecting is about. It's, you know, about buying these sort of just on the stand and remember those moments. And so, again, to have the original art like this, and that's the fun of it. That's that's the best way I can explain it. Like, I, can, I can't stop looking at that. It's ridiculously off model or a stormtrooper. <laughs> well, that's the other thing, too. They kind of, uh, uh, Chaykin and the different guys that worked on it, they, they'll talk about this a lot. You know, they were given some of the Macquarie pieces to look at. They were given some stills. At some point or another, they were invited to some early cuts of it. But, you know, when they, but they were working sort of, you know, in, you know, they kind of put up a couple of things. And they were just kind of working, and you know, and if that meant that all of a sudden uh, X wings are firing out of their nose cone, so be it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> you know, that one should be on the left and not the right. Yeah. Um, this is kind of fun, but again, you know, uh, the cover doesn't. Oh, by the way, you know, it's like the covers. Does this does this scene exactly happen? No, never. It doesn't appear in the movie. Still a great cover, and that, that has obviously a little bit to do with just marketing in general and the selling of the comics. It's a great comic yeah. tradition of the cover. Here you will now see, because this is already sort of issue three, you will now see a page from issue one where we will see what we mean by they didn't have a lot of reference material. And I will remind you what Shaken said about I wish I'd spent a little more time. Uh, enjoy the magic of Darth Vader. Um, so there's some Macquarie in there a little bit, I guess. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, sort of wonderful, maybe a little awful, but all the more wonderful because of the awfulness. Um, and uh, you know, uh, you know, Tarkin's nose not quite that pointy. But again, you know, it's just this, and especially when you look at the old record where a lot of these details got lost because of the way things were printed back then. When you, there's a real joy in sort of handling, you know, the actual originals. And they are larger. They're usually, uh, from this period, 11 by 17. So imagine sort of a, you know, that big, big, if you will. So they really pop when you have them. Or any comic art. It's a really fun thing. Obviously, some of these things maybe are slightly more expensive, but you can find, especially if you love that original Marvel run, you can find stuff after the first couple of issues for very reasonable amounts. You can probably get into this hobby if you're interested for you know a few hundred dollars, which isn't cheap, but it's also not the six hundred thousand I was talking about. They frame up really nicely. They go on, you know, they go on the wall. And again, it is that collector's pride that it's sort of the same thing. Of whatever page you have, 
ain't nobody else got it. Because I'll tell you, everybody's already got that light set. You know what I mean? <laughs> Everyone in this room has a little Lego set from downstairs. So I got that. So anyway, just, yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, David, here, you know, I think you guys might know, I'm in the publishing department of Lucasfilm, so hearing you talk about this, and having seen those oversized books they do yeah. for Mary Smith, where you get the art 100%, you should do something like that for Mr. Arnold. You guys ever saw that? next five years pitching that. Like I said, I, 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 I am a true fan of sort of, I guess, booster such as it is, even though at the same time, I hope none of you actually have money in our competition. So anyway, <laughs> very mixed feelings. I don't want to Great, perfect. Um, uh, kind of a neat page uh, with the sand people. Um, I think this is a page actually where perhaps Howard spent more time. Uh, and there's, there's, I think this is the energy. When you look at that center panel, the way he designed it. And again, I'm not just talking about, you know, this is maybe more of an art thing, but the way that the, uh, the what is it, gaffy stick, yeah. gaff stick, whatever, breaks the panels and stuff. I mean, there's some real energy here. And you can really see why Chicken was a, an honest to God great choice. Obviously, maybe the reference photos here were stronger. The other thing that was fun about the comics is they do have things like the big scenes and stuff because they were working from the full script. So you do get sort of the sort of uncut movie. The other thing that's really nice, at no point can anyone ever go into your comic or art page and make other characters shoot first. <laughs> 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 Because by issue six, uh, Chapin had run out of steam. The, the, the issue was actually penciled by uh, Rick Coburn, who did a lot of work on the early Star Wars comic. And it was gang inked by about seven or eight different gods. That means the book was so late to make its schedule that basically they just, whoever was around New York City was inking it. Now one of the more fascinating things about this page in particular, and I would draw your attention to the loop face in the bottom right corner, a lot of this page was inked by Dave Stevens, who created The Rocketeer, who's a brilliant animated inker. And there's nothing in the Star Wars comics that look at that sort of illustrative face down there that sort of pops out and yet completely different than say Luke's smiling face in panel three if you go from the top. And that's because they were literally sitting in a living room passing it from one guy to another inking the page. And again, I, I think every page can tell sort of a fun story and that's sort of this one's story. Uh, and especially and again, this is where we started, as we were talking about, for someone who's a Dave Stevens collector who doesn't know, Dave didn't do a lot of art and sadly has passed on to to find a page like this, which is definitively Stevens, even though it's Star Wars, it could appeal to a lot of different people for a lot of different reasons, along obviously with it's all memorable scenes from Star Wars. So again, just sort of talking about why things are interesting. Um, people generally gravitate toward things artists. You'll find guys, uh, guys that collect covers with monkeys. Um, explosion games. Explosion games. Kelvin's collection is what uh, I guess is commonly referred to as sort of good girl art, which is a lot of pin up and sort of female. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
It's been wrong. It's my wife. Relax. She's 12, but it's cool. Yeah, there was that. There's posterity. But 
So, uh, just to start talking about something else, there was a, you know, when comic collecting sort of started, people were very thrown and bored by the fact uh, that the art was black and white. Perhaps not as bored as these guys, but cool. Um, and uh, they were sort of, there was a movement afoot to have uh, comic book colorists hand color the original black and white art using markers. Preferably the guy that worked on the book, but in some cases, not the guy that worked on it. Sometimes people skip <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> but uh, so you end up with a lot of comic, there is especially a lot of early Star Wars art, where people loved it because it was Star Wars, and the comic art itself had no value. You get these hand colored pages. So this is something where, beyond even like, oh, someone spilled on it, or there's a cut, or it got moist, this is something one has to deal with. I know collectors who will not touch a hand colored um, I know I've actually myself tried to like give it to a paper store and see if it uh, could be uh, could the coloring be lifted out in such a religious process. It cannot. Um, and so you get these pages like this. And this is certainly one where I don't know who colored it. It didn't particularly do a great job. But the page is the page. It's a striking page. But I do think to myself, oh, what if this were black and white? So again, we're talking about condition. And we were talking before about unused covers. This is an unused pencil cover by uh, Gil Keane with a head partially inked by Tony Mazzuniga for what would have been Star Wars issue number seven. And they ended up moving it outside. It's still similar colors. It was sort of de-penciled in front of the wall. It's the piece that Alex Ross has done a print of. If anyone saw the limited edition print downstairs, he did his own painted version of this. So this is the cover to issue seven, but again, unused. So still more of an interesting rarity than, again, you know, is it a line? No, but it's one of my all-time favorite issues because we're sort of, as a, you know, again, sort of a seven-year-old, the note Star Wars ended, and this was the first issue that came out after the original adaptation. So Star Wars issue seven was the first new Star Wars story that ever existed. So seven to me has always been this just magical issue because all of a sudden, oh my God, Hansel and Chewbacca fighting alone. I, I must know more. Uh, the issue is terrible when you look back. It's awful. But you know, if I could ever actually find the cover to this, I would. I probably there are many things I'd get rid of in my collection to get this cover. So that's the other thing too is is I can tell you, like with all collecting, I may have a lot of wonderful Star Wars art. There's always something you don't have that's sort of driving you a little crazy. I guess you either have that collecting gene, which I assume most of you do, or you don't. Um, this is also interesting, just that uh, you know, some people would actually value this more than unpublished. No one else had seen this thing. They have this thing. Right, so you're now, you're kind of like, what makes it that much more important? No one's ever seen it. You know, and some people go, oh, if no one's ever seen it, I don't care. Well, it means more to me. The other thing that's fun with a piece like this is, with modern scanning and whatnot, I've been able to sort of scan this, make a, a blue line print, and give these pencils from 1977, obviously a blue line copy, to other modern inkers and say, why don't you guys ink it for fun? Let's see what kind of comes out of that. Which, as I say, I should have included one of those in the But take my word, they're very interesting. It's like an interesting thing in comic art, just that like the penciler, you know, can look different. Yeah, you can all different Another criteria that we looked at and talked a little bit about is significance. 
So here you go, these are two of the returning Jedi ministers. I built some characters, brilliant artists. And so for some people, because these are returning Jedi covers as opposed to issue 87 or even my beloved issue 7, this means more to people because it's adaptation. So again, these different criteria. Um, now we're talking about name artists. I mentioned John Byrne and Dave Stevens before. This is Michael Golden, has an amazing career in comics, uh, doing Vietnam, uh, Michael Knotts, Doctor Strange. So for many people, this is considered a really particularly great issue of the Marvel run because this is the issue that Michael Golden did the cover of the interiors to. And the only one. And the only one he did the cover to. So this is something that, again, what is your criteria? If it's the Michael Golden of it all, this means something. Uh, I mentioned Frank Miller earlier, the guy that did uh, Sin City, Dark Knight Returns, the guy's name Frank Miller. This is his one and only uh, Marvel cover, oddly enough, it's R2D2 and C3PO. Uh, I can see a little of the Miller in it, it barely looks like Miller, but he drew it, he signed it, it's Frank Miller. So again, is it more interesting because it's Frank Miller? Probably, because if it's not necessarily a cover that I might, it's not an issue I care about, but I was interested because it's Frank Miller. Does that sort of make some sense? But not by much. Right, not by much. She didn't sign this. I'm sort of telling you it's for sale. Like, see me afterwards in the Black Room Publishing, as I mentioned, did these three issues of Star Wars 3D. Uh, it was something that I, I remembered it. It was like a weird, foggy memory until I saw this cover. Um, this would be a low point in Star Wars. Yeah, this was probably the bottom of Star Wars Publishing. Post Marvel, pre Dark Horse. Not quite sure what this company was. The artist is Jim Nelson. Not quite sure who he is, but it's pretty great. So you could have done the license. Yeah, at that point, the license was easily available. But it's a it, it's a fun cover. And again, if you again you either have nostalgia for it, you enjoy this piece of art, uh, or you don't. But uh, it's just a fun one. And again, because of what this weird little blip in publishing. There's a rarity to it. So again, does that make it worth something or more or not? Yeah, probably so. It's still kind of fun. Um, which brings us to Dark Horse. There was no easy way of summing up all of Dark Horse. Obviously, there was the Dark Empire adaptation. They reprinted a lot of the old strip art stuff and got outlines and new covers. These were where they did the first Boba Fett miniseries, which I certainly love. Then the prequel adaptation, all this sort of old Republic stuff, your original scripts book. I mean, they, they did an amazing job. And just to give you an idea of what we were talking about before, sort of the no words, this is a Cam Kennedy uh, Boba Fett cover from one of the Boba He did a series of Boba Fett miniseries and one shot written by John Ostrander. I mean, no words, no Boba Fett walks alone or any of that kind of stuff. These are really just simple striking image that really, really sells it. This is Mark Schultz, who does Cadillacs uh, and Dinosaurs. Um, and this is a cover he did for an issue of classic Star Wars, where the interior was by other people. But uh, uh, Mark Schultz did this. Um, this is an Al Williamson cover, the great Al Williamson we were talking a little bit about before. Um, we talked a little bit about the newspaper strips. They were eventually were done at first by Russ Manning, and I guess was a little more affordable. And uh, Yes, that's right. And then eventually Al Williamson did it. These are some ones, uh, these are, this is an example of a uh, Hobart, but uh, you notice the signature on the far right um, with uh, Dave Stevens from The Rocketeer, who we talked about. 
before. And uh, Dave used to say, you had to, in any strip, you had to make one panel pop. You could rush the other two, but in a three-part strip, you got to make something pop. So here he went for the boba. So he went for the boba. Yeah, David, as you go through these, I wonder if there's any of that we got for you know, I think the act of collecting the whole art and collecting is a really interesting story. The number of times where, and it sounds silly, and again, I, I think the collectors here will sort of have similar stories, but the number of times where sort of, you know, I picked up a Star Wars cover in the sort of like the parking lot of a grocery at 6 p.m. and handed over cash in a paper bag where the cops probably would have arrested us and then teased us mercilessly when they realized it was a comic art deal. Um, you know, uh, these actually, in this case, came from Dave himself, came from Dave Stevens, who I was lucky enough to, uh, uh, to know when he was still alive. And uh, this was something where he knew I had come with him for an incredible long time. He started out assisting Russ Manning, which is how he knew yeah. the picture. And uh, eventually, sort of, was willing to um, This is another one where obviously he has Princess Leia in the middle, and Dave grew beautiful women. That's what we did. But again, look at how much simpler, not not rush, not bad, but look at either side of the Wilson panels. But again, that theory of you've got to make one panel sort of pop. Um, Star Wars manga, the cover, they were done all drawn by Japanese artists, but the covers were drawn by American artist uh, Adam Warren, who uh, sort of draws or a dirty pair and uh, draws in that kind of sort of and power, power Yeah, and does kind of a cartoony kind of manga style. And he did covers for the adaptation, as you can see here, kind of in that manga style, but, uh, you know, really sort of fun and under themselves. And he had kept these for a very long time. And this is sort of one of those situations where he decided to let go of all the covers to the original adaptations. And Lucasfilm had been contacted to sort of, and had to turn down the price before you could buy, which again, as a collector, a little frustrating, but it's just one of those things. And then of course you kind of start to question, oh, I wonder why they're turning it down. Am I crazy to buy it? No, not crazy. But well, you're willing to pay more than Lucas. Yeah, exactly. So yes, yes, which I can say all the time. I'll pay more than George Lucas. Um, <laughs> you see my uh, and then I just sort of threw together a couple of miscellaneous things where comic book artists have worked in a variety of other places, uh, a lot of the Topps art collections, uh, I think Mad Magazine, Crack Magazine, I would consider comic art. Uh, in his name, Jeffrey Brown, sort of dark reader and son of the magazine, has that sort of cartoony style. So this is by Jeff Gower, this is a hard art movie for Topps, um, from uh, I think the original set of the Topps card. He uh, did uh, Shadow Cowboy, one of the conceptual artists on the Matrix movies. Hardboiled uh, with Frank Miller, just an amazing artist. Um, this is Bruce Tim. This is from one of the more recent sets. Bruce Tim actually always wanted to do a Star Wars adaptation, but his style was considered too cartoony and was offered other things. But he really wanted to do the, uh, the Phantom Menace adaptation. But George actually always liked a more illustrated style, like Chapin, like Williamson. And, you know, and again, it's kind of cool in the sense that George Lucas is picking artists. I mean, it, there's something oh, really I, new. I got, a, yeah. I got an email from his assistant, you know, uh, when he found out, you know, I mean, 
for the city of Alcorn Wireless Series, but yeah, you know, why do you make sure that he's not his copy of yeah. the new Wireless Series? And uh, there's something really kind of cool about it, you know, again, I'll into it. This is, uh, this is uh, actually a piece by Mobius, uh, a great French sci-fi This ran in a lot of the French publications, like, when the movie came out. And it's one of, I think, only two pieces. We did a Phantom Menace piece for uh, the uh, Vision. Vision? Yeah, I don't know. I, yeah. I like the Phantom Menace. I'm not sure where it is. But yeah, it's sort of like a market. It's like a marketplace with like a young Anakin and whatever. So, you know, arguably one of the great sci-fi artists in the world that did two pieces. Uh, I would say I was thrilled to find this. And I think it's a cool comic shop in LA. The guy who bought it a million years ago. And of course, there's moments where you bring Greg Savage. Do you like Star Wars? Yeah, why? And the next thing you know, you get to see the Mobius thing. And that's the thrill of the hunt, too, finding that kind of stuff. Uh, this is actually by uh, Vicker. This is not the finished cover. George wanted to finish, but this is his rough. Uh, so this is sort of the, the feeling, if you will. It's as close as I can get. So you can see the face at the back are a little looser. Kind of the version, but uh, a lot of the mad art is something that I think George collects. Actually, the team of Spielberg is a huge mad collection as well. So again, whatever you can find, where you can find, it, that's the collector idea. That's a good illustration process, just to go, especially paintings that go through several stages of doing color and Yeah, so sometimes if you can't find a painting, you might find a painting, or there might be a pencil sketch. And then, by the way, the other fun thing is if you do find a piece and you find out that there are other pieces in the process, for me, that becomes the next point, you know, how to find those pieces. pieces back yeah. yeah. Um, one of the Jeffrey Brown pieces, I, I really enjoy those books. Uh, yeah, I just like to show you here, there's one of the great moments in, in the publishing. I always remember, we, I went into the off, Carol Roeder, who was the head of publishing at that time, called me in to take a look at the book idea. And we were like, I think there were literally like five or six, you know, documents that he had done. And it was just one of those moments where you go, yeah, this is great. Let's do it. And then we just continue to make it give you much, much better than you And I, and I, I don't say that I'm a comedy writer. That's my day job. These things make me laugh. And then uh, I have a seven-year-old daughter and five-year-old son. And I actually showed them Star Wars on Saturday for the first time. Never it to my daughter was seven, because I was seven, um, and showed them. Uh, well, showed them. 1977. That adaptation sold hundreds of thousands of copies in multiple countries and multiple printings. And really, it's interesting and ironic that Disney owns both those companies were in a weird way because Marvel printed Star Wars back in the day, and obviously it has it again. It really probably allowed there to be things like all you know the modern comics we love. It kept that company afloat. And if you look through Marvel Comics in the 70s, I think also to a lesser extent, you will find loads of Star Wars parodies, little sort of mix from Star Wars and whatnot. And obviously they weren't doing it for that reason, but I had so close to 
Oh, very narrow. Yeah. And they were really desperate. I mean, okay, I understand Dr. Doom is Vader. Okay, Superman <coughs> is, uh, is sort of Luke, but that's Moondragon. They have to dig deep from Moondragon. The Jaws yeah. part is what I don't understand. Yeah, Star Jaws. I don't know. <laughs> Doctor Doom is not in it. Uh, she's not in it. There's no. She might be in it. Thing. I don't know. She's, there's no lightsaber, so you know, again, some of fun. Uh, and then, which kind of comes full circle, which is Marvel has the license again. They're doing three comics. The first issues had about a million variant covers. Uh, you know, it was a mad fight for who's buying, who's buying what, who's buying what. You know, it's that kind of thing. Um, and I just wanted to show my most recent pick up, which I think you guys get a kick out of. This is a Scotty Young did one cover for each of the three books. Scotty does this kind of fun, cartoony style. He's uh, got some Oz adaptations. And uh, the three go together as kind of a triptych. So I thought, I thought this would be kind of neat to see. Uh, so that's, those are the three of his Star Wars 1 variant covers. Uh, and I just thought that was sort of fun kind of. And on, and then one other little thing, just so, you know, if this has any interest, you haven't walked out, you want to start sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. Simply click the PayPal link on our website, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the 2TrueFreaks at the same time. 
Welcome to Amazon. I love you. <laughs> Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can email Two True Freaks directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for Two True Freaks. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. Thanks for listening. And join us every Monday for new episodes of Two Two True True Freaks. I thought Scott Rifen stopped eating babies. (laughs) 